Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Our guest today is futurist Trond Untheim. Trond and I discuss five technologies that every leader needs to understand in order to flourish throughout the rest of this decade. We talk about the disruptive nature of artificial intelligence, blockchain, synthetic biology, 3D printing, robotics, and how as these technologies interact with each other, they will change every aspect of our lives. Trond, welcome to 12 Geniuses. I'm happy to be here, Don. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Let's get started with your background. You grew up in Norway, but tell us about what your background was like and then your education, and then we'll talk about your path to becoming a futurist. Yes. I mean, my path is uh, is simple. I grew up in an academic household with uh, guests coming into the house with interesting conversations. My dinner table was full of interesting conversations. I think my life has been a conversation. That's that's sort of how I would characterize it. I have this crazy Norwegian name that you know few people can pronounce, but apart from that, I think my family prepared me well for kind of an international and open outlook. So very curious guy, very impatient. And I think curiosity and impatience have kind of followed me. And they're, they're I guess, both a clue to kind of my success, but also, you know, it dooms me sometimes because I'm interested in so many things. But I've ended up working, you know, all across sectors. I've worked for governments and got, you know, a, a feel of what it means to try to take responsibility, to try to build policy and regulation and technology and, and, and other fields. I have worked at universities, including, you know, at MIT, both teaching and, and working on programmatic efforts to, to further startup innovation and, and scaling and helping corporates, uh, you know, make benefits out of that type of innovation. Now I am engaging quite deeply with the startup again in, on the industrial tech side. When did you know you wanted to be a futurist and how do you become a futurist? Well, I've known that I was interested in the future. Actually, I was much more interested in history at first, but it was my interest in history that catapulted me into thinking about, well, then if all of this happened and I'm reading about all of these things, what might the future hold? So in, in other words, the, the more I was diving into history, the more I got interested in, well, where are we heading now? Perhaps, you know, it was a sense of just wanting to be part of something greater. I, I had this enormous fascination with uh, explorers, polar explorers, for example. You know, the, the great Norwegians that were exploring the North and South Pole, you know, the Amundsens and Nansen, the guys who, you know, essentially crossed Greenland and, you know, on skis and uh, discovered the South Pole in 1911 with uh, Amundsen beating the English, you know, on astounding accounts. So I think for me, the future is something that I, with you, I, th I think you can create and then have a, a hand in the future. It's not like you just have to face all these things and, and adapt to it. But so I guess that. That's why I'm interested. Why did I, how do you become a futurist? It's a very recent label of mine because I spent too much time, I guess, in academia and you wouldn't dream of calling yourself a futurist when you, you're still trying to get a degree or you're, you know, working in a university. It's scorned upon because it sort of implies, you know, something about a state that science shouldn't say anything about, right? Because science is all about experimenting basically on reality. So for me, stepping out of the academia, chains basically has liberated me 
to start thinking and allowing myself to think that I can be a futurist and think about the long term without the shackles of, of sort of having to report to someone on your methodologies. I was interested in having this conversation with you because we are recording season six of the podcast and the theme of the podcast or the theme of the season is leadership. You re wrote this article talking about five technologies that matter most at this moment. And I, I wanted to have you explain what these technologies are and why you chose these technologies. Well, so real quickly, this is part of a, a, a book I wrote last year called Future Tech, uh, where I went into describing a, a framework really to understand all technologies. But, but in order to give some example of what that framework could be used for today, I put out that, you know, AI, blockchain, robotics, synthetic biology, and 3D printing are at this moment, particularly salient technologies that are going to have impacts beyond the kind of immediate application area that you can sort of think of them right now. And also because these five, in many cases, are interacting. So the kinds of changes that they will foster depend in some way on the other technologies and where they are going. And I think, you know, collectively about those five, I made the point that it's not so much that the technologies and the capabilities of the technologies themselves, it is the, not just the interaction between them, but it is the the way that we put them to use. So in other words, why would you spend time describing it to non-experts? And the reason I put up is, you know, in order to make use of a technology, if you don't fully understand it, its potential, or in fact, anybody who understands its potential can change the trajectory of a technology. So, so these five it, it doesn't really matter what they're capable of today. They are actually open-ended enough that they can be capable of so much more if we let them. But the other side of that coin is, of course, they have such sort of immeasurable potential to change things that we care about that we should think about it from another side as well. What are the consequences if we choose to go down this or that road? So I think technology is just such a, two-edged sword. And I wrote the book about how to understand technology and how it fits into society from the point of view of saying, it's not enough anymore to become just an expert, right? I, I talk about this polymathic attitude that I think is important to think of in schooling. It's important to think of for your kids. It's even important for yourself, no matter what age you are today. If you plan to live for another few years and have any inkling about what's happening in society. Well, I, I, I do want to dive into a couple of them. I think that most people will understand what artificial intelligence is. They may not understand it deeply, but they know that they're working with it. I think people have a pretty good sense of synthetic biology, although um, I had to look up the definition of you picked the two that I would say people have the least sense. Is that of. right? Okay. I, yeah, and okay. I well, would why say do you, I have the you, least why, sense. Why do you feel that? Maybe maybe we think we know what it is, but maybe we don't truly know what AI and synthetic biology are. Well, look, I think all of these are known, in, they're, they're, they're well known as concepts that even, you know, even my kids, my, my daughter who's eight, will have a sense 
uh, or, or certainly my son who's 13, 14 and 15, you know, the, my, my, my kids that are sort of in that age range will, will already have a sense. They will have heard it in school. They might even have, you know, had lessons discussing these terms. So it is out there in a general sense. It's just that what these terms mean today is very different from, from, you know, where they will go even just two, three years from now. So you start out with something and you think you know what it is, but in fact, we're just one or two innovations away from them meaning very different things because they're generative technologies. So that's kind of part of the, part of the point here is that you have to continue diving into it because even if you had a PhD in AI five years ago, if you didn't read a paper and you were sitting in, in jail or like, you know, on a sailing trip or something and came back after five years, it would take you some amount of energy to understand the latest papers. And they, they have changed so much, the potential, what you can do, especially if you apply it kind of in an industrial setting, right? Some of these technologies have gone from just being theoretical like statistical formulas, you know, in the beginning, even just 10 years ago to now you need it if you're going to design a car. So, so that's very different. The one on the list that surprised me that you included was blockchain. And I think that's because that's the one I understand the least. For me, blockchain is just a new financial infrastructure. The other, the, the word of the year, according to the Collins Dictionary, is uh, NFTs, you know, which is a related concept. It's actually kind of a, a more commercially understandable example of what blockchain can be used for. Because NFTs is sort of this idea that you can create an artifact, uh, maybe an artwork, and then sell it on to someone in, in kind of a digital form, but the ownership, the benefits you know, will accrue both to the artist and the person who sells it continuously. In other words, I can sell on this, whatever artwork or piece of audio print, which we started talking about, like maybe it is an, an audio recording of uh, Kim Kardashian that I somehow have access to and have the rights to, and I can sell it on to you. And then perhaps Kim Kardashian gets a, 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 you know, a share of that, and then you sell it on to your friend. And Kim Kardashian still gets a share of that. So it has this like viral potential to share and still tr and trade in a completely new way. And, and NFTs are, are facilitated by blockchain. It's just one silly example, although potentially, you know, earth shattering for the art world and for publishing and for a bunch of other things. But blockchain is just this, I think, new financial underpinning of the world where you know, in, in principle, there is a visible ledger for all transactions that you can't alter, meaning you have a record of who has been transacting and there doesn't have to be a central bank governing it. Although I think you'll see nation states now coming major, you know, in major ways going into the, the blockchain uh, space to try to get a piece of this pie. So it's a generative technology that makes completely new things possible. It's impossible for a futurist, a planner, a government, even a capitalist who has access to a lot of resources. You just have no idea what this is going to turn into. You mentioned 3D printing 
And it's been around for a long time, and I've been waiting for it to take off and be really, really disruptive. And it doesn't seem to have. Is that because I haven't been exploring it enough? Or is this something that is going to be kind of future disruptive? Look, I think you probably have been exploring it enough. I would disagree. I think it is, well, maybe I'll say it this way. It's about to change the world in a very visible way. It's about to decentralize the production and delivery of most goods. Most. Most goods, not every good. Uh, there are complicated, large infrastructure, large technologies that require complex supply chains or the ingredients uh, or the materials used for the production. Cars, electronics, cell phones come to mind, right? They're not very easily 3D printed because you're, you're using rare earth metals and a few other things that just, you just got to procure them in such amounts that it's not financially viable to have a print shop in your basement or, you know, at the end of the street. But for many other consumables, where we want to customize and ideally to personalize them, and you want to add to them and maybe change them over time, you have a backpack that you want to adapt. You don't, you know, you need to print an extra part for that backpack because you're going on a trip, but you don't want to buy a new one. There are all of these things that are going to be possible where the life cycle of a product is going to be extended and the delivery of a product is going to be localized uh, into your community essentially so that's that, that, that and that for me is transformational and and then you know they're adding new materials that can be printed every month that's the thing that is confusing to me is yes you can print just about anything but you need the materials so how do you get the materials like that that that's the the unknown to me well, well, so supply chain is a, is a crazy topic that no one cared about until this year either. <laughs> and uh, the limiting factor for 3D printing is supply chain. So you need to have a financial model where it's viable. You know, it's not just about the technology of a printer that you have to, you know, have to own a 3D printer. You have to own the materials or, or have a, a, a financially literate way to get to all these materials. And that's the limiting factor. So... Am I correct in assuming that, let, let's say I'm the CEO of a drug company and I'm going to allow others to 3D print a medication. Uh, do, is there some sort of licensing structure that happens to enable somebody to 3D print this medication? And then is the transaction done through blockchain? Is, am I thinking about that correctly? Because it used to be, I was responsible or my company was responsible for creating this drug. And then we distributed it out through our supply chain into retail stores around the country or around the world. But this, what you're talking about is a completely different model. How does that model work? Well, the, the, the model doesn't work at the moment, right? It's uh, creating a lot of head scratching for IP lawyers in life science firms and other firms because it changes... Uh, the way that you have to protect your intellectual property changes. So in many ways, it, it'll depend what, what sort of business models that, that become successful here. But it, it could be that the ultimate solutions for li life science companies might just be that until you get to a batch of one where you say, well, this is a pill that can only be printed for dawn, 
because we have checked your system and you have sent in your data and here's your pill. Because they're really, that is the ultimate level of protection is that this pill is only printed for you. And so that's where you're talking about how these technologies interact with each other, right? So yes. you have artificial intelligence to determine what's the right composition of that prescription for me, Don, and right. it's different than you, Trond. And, and you need a delivery model and you need a financial yeah. model on top of it. Yep. Otherwise, these yeah. technologies are not going to be able to work. So we need to all agree on this. And then there needs to be a, regular, a regulatory structure on top of it that says, well, this is fair or, you know, we're going to investigate because this doesn't seem fair. And uh, yeah, it's not just about the technologies. That's why I think these things are going to take a lot longer to shake out. You can invent something crazy, but... As a society, we will object if it seems unreasonable. So it's not like a technology comes along, you have no agency. We have agency. It's just that it takes policymakers a long time to understand the ramifications of all these things, how they are interacting. Where do you see these five technologies in 2032, for example? I would say true AI, meaning any kind of generative intelligence that starts to rival human beings in not just domain-specific ways, we, we are very far out. Um, I am less worried about that in 2030 than I am about just a, a generally sound sort of regulatory framework for algorithms. It's not just the big specter of AI that I would talk about in 2030. That's not even far enough out to get an enormously far. But I think by that time, we will have to grapple with what an algorithm is should be fully understood. No one should be able to productize and sell something based on an algorithm that only a machine understands or only a company that uses this algorithm understands. Perhaps they don't even understand it. So I think by 2030, the world will have a regulatory framework for algorithms. It's going to create things less messy. It might slow th some things down, but we'll have a grip on machine learning. We won't have a grip on uh, sort of like generalized AI. We will have a grip on domain-specific applications of machine learning frameworks that can, is capable of analytics far outstripping any computer today and any human for sure. Um, and we will have a regulated way of, of doing that and, and an understandable way that that is uh, conducted. So that'll create some sort of like an entente, some sort of like agreement for a while. That's where we are like 10 years from now. What about robotics? It's going to take a decade to implement robotics as far as it can go in today's factories. And I certainly don't think that it's going to mean the end of the industrial worker in the next decade. It'll, um, it'll change a lot. Smart factories will look very different. We, we're probably not going to recognize the factory. Like if you walk into a factory today, you walk into a factory 10 years from now, you will not really recognize the place. It'll still, I think, be a place. Uh, and it will have robots, but it'll also have people, but they will just be working. And they will, the analog, I think, is this, Don. They will be working, industrial workers will be working in much the same way that you and I work as knowledge workers today with desks. 10 years from now, we will sort it out the best digital configuration for kind of what we traditionally would call a frontline worker or like a blue collar person who doesn't have a desk and who runs around and perhaps stands up during their work. They haven't had any digital tools. And then come 
you know, obviously big machines came during the first, second, and sort of third industrial revolution. Now we are adding the more granular digital tools that will actually make them not just productive, but actually these jobs will be more interesting and less, you know, dull, dangerous, and uh, dirty, right? That is happening in the next decade. Right? The, the limitation isn't in the robotics that's going to come rolling in. The, up, the, the, the potential technologies are going to be there. But what we're going to have to do as industrial nations is foster a mentality of continuous change. And that's, that's where the leadership part of this conversation comes in. So let's talk about what these capabilities, specifically these five technologies, mean for leaders. And let's start with CEOs. Well, CEOs are, are going to be challenged to be tech literate themselves because it's not enough to sort of say, I have a CTO who takes care of the tech side, right? Because that what's going to happen is then that CTO is the de facto CEO of the company. So that's one change. You know, you can either start engaging with what these discussions mean and, and really deeply understand the, uh, you know, the, the driving force of your productive advantage is, is technology. So you need to kind of engage with that as a CEO. Uh, but coordination of all these elements and interacting with your workforce, motivating the workforce, that is still at the heart of being a CEO. So I think figuring out a training system that works in motivating your workers to continuously chain, train, that is the leadership challenge, number one. So, so that's, uh, I would say, the most important to kind of reestablish that contract with, with your worker and uh, find ways that they can thrive in this you know, era of change. I, I think it's so well put. And you, know, you, you mentioned in this article that I referenced earlier the idea of reskilling. And I think not only is it a strategic imperative, but it's also a moral obligation that leaders have to prepare their people three years out, not three months out, but three years out for these changes so they are ready to take advantage and thrive, as you said. I think that today the challenge is somewhat different. We can't afford, actually, to have send people into 10 years of schooling anymore. We don't have that. Those numbers don't exist. So we're going to have to train and retrain people on the job, but in equally advanced ways. Right? We can't send people to six-year, four-year, perhaps not even two-year college degrees. Right? In the U.S., the, the idea here is that the community college system is going to retrain people. But I think you can really forget that. Two years. We're not going to be able to afford that as a society. But essentially, the responsibility is probably going to be shifted over to employers and to individuals rather than these educational institutions. I just, I don't see how it can scale because the, the, the amount of things you have to learn, you have to learn things every day, right? This is not like getting a degree and then showing off a, a nice little degree. You, you know, tomorrow you're going to be faced with something. You have, you have to generate a creative response to a challenge in your job as a factory worker. We talked about CEOs. Can you talk about lower level leaders within our organizations, our companies, what these changes mean to them and how they can harness them or prepare their employees? If you're in the middle uh, of an organization, meaning you, you, you report to people and you have people that report to you, it's just imperative that you fully understand uh, 
what the people that report to you need to feel efficient and you know feel fulfilled in in, in their jobs um, but i think overall decentralizing learning and opportunity as far down in the organization as possible is a very important principle that will when carried out well it has done wonders for example to the it industry right where you know decentralized tools have been moved into any software engineer's toolkit so it's not like you're sitting there and you're apple or you know you're google or something you're saying to your kind of low level engineer that are you know paid $200,000 a year uh, out of school you're not telling them what to do you're giving them tools you're trying to help them essentially make them as free as possible give them everything that you think they might dream of their dream tools and then you give them challenges but you don't tell them exactly how to solve it we talked about ceos lower level leaders what about government and you can get back into regulation and talk about that but what do these changes mean to government leaders? And that's a broad topic, obviously. We could talk about heads of countries. We could talk about senators, representatives, community leaders. You know, can you talk about that constituency? If you, as a government function, forget your number one role, which is maintain law and order and protect people's health, those are the two basic forms of government. Number three, do it in a way that you know, follows whatever governance uh, system that you have committed to, whether it's, you know, democracy or, you know, God forbid, an autocracy. But, you know, you have to kind of follow the formula. This is what you had said you would do. You either represent us or we have, you know, you govern us for some reason. You got to follow that logic. The problem, I think, now with governance is that technology and uh, other disruptions have kind of poked holes in the legitimacy of many of those things. If governments don't really protect you anymore. If state health plans or even just the governance structure around health is not the major reason that you are healthy today and you have had to find other reasons to stay healthy, either your own individual actions or private health plans or whatever it is, you're taking away the fundamental rationale why you would be loyal to a governance entity. So unless we fix that, people are opting out of government. And you see it in the elite circles in the US, they have already opted out probably decades ago, but certainly became very visible with COVID. They have their own solutions to all of their own problems, privatized ways to, to, to solve everything. So there is no collective we in the top sort of uh, one to 5% of the American economy. And I think you're seeing that on the lower end too. Because if people feel squeezed uh, and they're like, I'm a worker and no one's taking care of me, no one is reskilling me, I'm going to take my matters into my own hands. So the fundamental challenge for governmental leaders, whether it is you know, at a local level in a town or, or in a country or, or, or sort of globally, is to find and explore wh where is the source of my legitimacy. And I think we have a challenge there because these national democracies were founded on principles that don't, they don't make any sense anymore. That's exactly where I wanted to go. Have we outgrown the 20th century 
idea of government? Yeah, I mean, we have, of course, outgrown it, but no one has come up with a plausible <laughs> way to get us to the alternative, which is global or at least some sort of multilateral regional government. And it's not the UN. The big problems that are plaguing humanity are global. Could you imagine if the people who are affected by climate change or the pandemic today had a vote? What, what do you think would happen? If they had one vote yes. each. Yes. If it, if it was a global and democracy. The, uh, yes. yes. And I'm not saying this as some sort of radical, I'm just pointing out the logical inconsistency here has to find an outlet. I think it's going to play out over 50 years, not over five, 10 years. But there's no doubt in my mind that when we, well, certainly before we cross uh, 2100, the nation state will be a very different place. How would you describe work in 2032? Look, I would like it to be meaningful for most workers that have made the bargain and said, uh, sort of the Faustian bargain, they've said, sort of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to face my own demons and I'm going to change every day. I'm going to be open to the changes in the world. I am going to take the challenge and learn new things all the time. For those people, um, I think it's a brighter future than now. They're going to be excited. They're going to be doing meaningful work. You know, wherever we are as a society, there will be a lot of exciting challenges 10 years from now, probably more exciting than now. And there'll be better tools to accomplish those. And some of them will be organizational tools. There'll be um, companies doing super interesting things. It's an entirely new industrial landscape. For those people who opt to say, I'm going to go inward, whether it is into the metaverse or I'm going to refuse to, to engage with knowledge, insight, reason, any of these things, I think there's a conspiracy against me. They sort of take the things we just talked about a minute ago, uh, which is you know the unfairness of current democracies or the, your lot in life, right? There's, you know, there's a fairness crisis. And then you say, because there is a fairness crisis, I'm going to not do my share. Those people are going to be severely unhappy and they're going to be punished, unfortunately. Can you imagine a future? And if so, uh, can you talk about the time frame where we're taxing robots and taxing AI? Does that, does that make sense? Are you thinking about that at all? I would hope that within 10 years, we have a robot tax, meaning if you uh, are eliminating workers and have been found to essentially eliminate workers through automation, you need to pay a tax credit. You, know, you need to have tax credit for that. You need to pay, pay a tax or you can, you know, some, similar to like a carbon tax, essentially. Mm -hmm. Are countries talking about this? I know when I was in Germany recently, a friend of mine, we, he and I, chatted about it and he said, yeah, there are conversations happening in Germany, but I haven't heard that in the U.S. Well, the U.S. is very behind on, on <laughs> things like this, right? It gets stuck in politics. And I think we have an aging uh, political class that is increasingly irrelevant to important things, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, that's not going to shake out easily. The, the, those people have a hard time understanding really basic things about technology. And that's a, it's a challenge.
their advisors are young, so I'm sure they have everyday struggles explaining things. But, you know, when you have to start the conversation with, you know, what is the internet and, you know, what is social media, then you, you can't get very far. No, and that was exposed a couple of years ago. Well, in those hearings. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What other technologies are you fascinated by that we didn't talk about today? I mean, I'm fascinated by any, any technology that is being brought to bear on sort of big either social or industrial issues. I'm, like I said, more, more fascinated with industrial tech. So in industrial tech, there's uh, automation technologies, there's augmentation technologies that is much more connected to kind of creating, uh, helping the worker connect to, to various digital information in, in a better way. There are m many technologies like that. Augmentation in terms of augmented reality is interesting. So the metaverse we talked about before, it's not that it's not interesting. It's just that to commercialize it too early, I think I, I'm very worried about. But I am excited about the prospect of having technologies add on to our sort of cognitive life and, and you know, help us do things better, faster, deeper. Um, I like cognitive technologies. What do you think about brain-machine interfaces? Well, they're getting better. Is it good for humanity, or do you, do you worry about that, or both? <laughs> well, the invasive ones that are actually drilling into your skull, I'm somewhat worried about. You know, if you look at the Elon Musk-like uh, instantiations where they're you know, connecting sensors straight into your brain fibers, I think that's interesting, and I think it will happen. Uh, I, I think we have no idea about the consequences of that yet. And I think that the prototypes that we have right now are going to be insufficient to really fully understand the consequences of making mistakes there. So that worries me a little bit, but it's obviously exciting for people with very serious brain disorders. So I don't think we can stop the development. Um, but if you were, if you are just talking in the next decade, th those things are exciting for people with brain injuries. They're not so exciting for you and I. In the next 50 years, they will be exciting for you and I, but mostly from the perspective of, uh, you know, creating, a, I guess, an, a, an enhanced class of people who have direct access to cognitive abilities, uh, who are already perhaps smart, but who can collectively now, using this sort of artificial brain power, maybe solve the really big remaining questions in physics uh, related to, like I said, the efficiency of space, space travel, uh, you know, viral uh, occurrences and, you know, the, the climate change, big, big, big issues uh, where you actually need a bigger than uh, you know, 10x, 100x, 1000x smarter human brain connected to memory circuits and, and, and sort of artificial intelligence. There is no doubt that we are heading there, but it'll take much, much longer than we, um, than we think. And, and hopefully it will, like hopefully governments will slow that down because we have no idea what's going to happen once we really connect those wires. Hearing you talk, um, it confirms some things that I've been thinking about and that's that one of them is that we're on the precipice of some sort of human evolution, that human beings look completely and function completely differently than they do right now. Oh, I think there's no doubt. But you know what, Don? I am more worried about 
humans than I am about the hybrid of human and AI. What do you mean by that? So think about if you send people on a spaceship for 30 years and they float around in space and come back, I'd be more worried about what those collectively would have been thinking about and what sort of vision they have of the world and how they want to impose it on us. Even if there had been no evolution in technology, it just those, those guys like a hundred people circling around for 30 years and coming back to earth and saying, here's what we have found out. I'd be more worried about that than I would in the same time period, some AI lab run by even fairly mischievous people in some private corporation sitting there and making enormous progress in, uh, you know, uh, brain integration, uh, with AI and then coming out with some prototypes and then trying to sort of solve the world's problems or, or worse, you know, try to dominate us. And I think the most important thing now with tech development is I do not want people to develop technology in a vacuum. And I certainly don't want people to isolate themselves because that's, I think where you lead, that's where the potential is for really big problems. You have a podcast called Futurized and I listened to one of your episodes, the future of consciousness, which yeah. is a really heady topic, right? Yeah, and I was like, I mean, do I even have any business listening to this? Because your guest was just unbelievably brilliant, but you were talking about cryogenics. Right. And the ethics of thawing somebody 400 years after their death. And my thought was, that would be horrible to have a 400-year vacuum <laughs> between my death and my reawakening. And, if, you know, I just was like, no, that, that's hell. Don't sign me up for that. Yeah, I mean, there's the ethical question of can you even do that? But I think right. for intergalactic and, and certainly sort of intergenerational flight, when you're thinking we're, we're just heading out there, like some sort of Star Trek, we're, we're heading out there in the universe, you, you have to have that perspective because not only are you going to have to bring embryos that you're going to awaken later, so those embryos will, will eventually become people out there and know that their fathers and mothers lived 100 years ago. Or you'll awaken people who are in their prime, or maybe they are kids. Maybe that's the optimum. Like you, you raise them so they understand a little bit about the world. Then you freeze them down. And then you kind of gradually wake up a hundred or, you know, however many you are have. Let's say you have 300 on the spaceship. You wake up like 50 at a time and then let them understand more and more about where they are. And then 50 years after that, you wake up another generation and then you refill it. Then you have maybe some some intermingling, you know, if you're able to actually procreate up there. So anyway, I mean, these are things that we're going to have to face pretty soon. Pretty soon, meaning in this this uh, next 100 years. Do you have any final advice for leaders at any level for how to navigate the next decade? I think I'll go back to the beginning: grounding in nature and other people. So. Don't obsess so much on theoretically understanding something, whether it's through books or, you know, pit holes on the internet that you find and dive into that you forget that, you know, we're sort of in this together as a human race. And I would say, I find that grounding in, in very basic, boring things, I guess, like family, nature walks and um 
and then community with other professionals that are not in your profession. So if you do those three things, stay in touch with family and, and with your community, but with people that think differently from you in other professions and have a real connection with the ecosystem. Walk around tangible, feel the rock under your foot and know that that's where you probably are going to end up. I really appreciate your time. This has been a phenomenal conversation and a great addition to season six of 12 Geniuses. Again, thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. In our next episode, I talk with Ray Kelly, a former Fortune 500 executive who now coaches and mentors leaders. Ray and I talk about how organizations can create a leadership-driven culture. We also talk about the importance of prioritizing a sense of belonging for all employees. That conversation will be available April 19th, 2022. Thank you to Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. If you love this podcast, please let us know by subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a genius.